0: Hey friends, welcome back to Teen Apologetics. Super pumped to join us today to have Joe Schmid from The Majesty of Reason, where you're talking about his recent article on causal fitnessism. So, Joe, what's up, man? How you doing? I'm doing well. I, uh, I've enjoyed the times that I've come on your channel, and I'm really looking forward to this one. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm curious, and one really hard question. Is red your favorite color? Because I was just looking at your background, I'm like,
1: there's so much red happening over there. <laughs> yeah, so... um I don't really have a favorite color, to be honest. Um, I mean, my favorite soccer team is Arsenal, and so they're the colored red, right? That's their home color. So you know, you got. Uh, am I pointing the right direction? Oh yeah. So we got the scarf. We got the Arsenal fan parking only. I've got I've got all Arsenal stuff behind me. So, mm-hmm.
0: but it's like your, your book. There's a bunch of red popping out, and there's another big book behind yeah. you. It's
1: like red with all
0: these words, and I'm like, well, <laughs> maybe red is your favorite color. So maybe no, it's maybe like- it's a subconscious sort of thing. We're discovering truth here together. Um, besides we're talking about red, we're going to be talking about like Joe's article on causal finitism. So Joe, to get things started, do you want to talk a little bit like preliminary notes like of what's going on in this article and this discussion that we're going to be having?
1: Yeah. So um, I'm guessing you're going to um, put it in the description. So if people want to read it, they can check it out. Uh, it's mm-hmm. also on my Phil people profile as well as my, my website, josephschmidt.com. But um, yeah, it's called a step-by-step argument for causal finitism. I develop a kind of, abductive slash inductive, non-deductive argument for causal finitism, a very tentative one in the article. And um, it published with their Kentness, that's a journal, a uh, philosophy journal. And so, yeah, what are some preliminary notes on this? Well, firstly, I want to say before we get in is, is that this article is exploratory, right? So I kind of just wanted to see how far I could push these new sorts of arguments, because uh, I developed like new arguments in it. And I mean, Ultimately, at the end of the day, I'm not entirely sure whether my arguments succeed. Um, I at least find them really philosophically interesting. Uh, and I think that they can lay the foundation for new research in debates concerning causal finitism. Um, and I'll be noting occasionally some of my reservations as we proceed. Um, so that's kind of the first preliminary note. It's like this article was mainly exploratory on my end. Um, I'm not really trying to stake a flag and you know defend a particular position. I really want to explore these arguments. And then the second preliminary note is that um, all things considered, uh, I'm about agnostic on the truth of causal finitism, and we're going to get into what causal finitism is later. But um, so what that means is just basically I suspend judgment on whether or not causal finitism is true, and I'll explain later on in this discussion why that is.
0: I really like your mentality, Joe, in thinking about these things, because like I'm not going to be like a full-on like philosopher or anything like that one day. It's not in the horizon for me. Uh, but like I, I totally agree with like the way you're doing things, and I think like we can all do the same thing where we can defend certain views to like explore it and think about it without like being like explicitly committed to it. Cause I think sometimes like when I first got into this whole like philosophy apologetic spirit, it's like, Oh, if you produce a video or have someone on um defending a view, that's your view. You can't have like the other guys on. oh that's not good. Yeah. Um, that's mean. So I really like what you're doing there.
1: Yeah, no. And I want to reiterate that. Like I, uh, or uh, I guess reciprocate that. I love that about your channel, right? You're getting open theists on, you're getting Molinists on, you're getting, um, deter- <laughs> theological determinists on and so on. Like it's, it's in the process of, it's, a, it's for the purpose of exploration and serving people. So. Mm-hmm, exactly. So did I read into your paper then, Joe? What is causal finitism? Yeah, so causal finitism, which is the cent- central centerpiece of my article, is basically, it's a thesis, right? So it's a metaphysical thesis about the way that reality is. And there are a number of slightly different ways that you can say it. But I guess the simple way to say it is that infinite causal regresses are impossible. There cannot be infinite causal regresses. Um, What is a causal regress? Well, it's just where A is caused by B, which is in turn caused by C, which is in turn caused by D, and so on, ad infinitum. So basically, nothing can have infinitely many causes, whether directly or indirectly. Um, Not necessarily every causal history is finite. You can put it in a bunch of different ways, um, but that's the basic idea. Now, one quick thing before I turn it back over to you is that um, causal finitism not only rules out, as Alexander Proust says, causal finitism not only rules out Um, these infinite dependence chains of causation, so infinite causal regresses, it also rules out infinite causal cooperation. So what that means is that infinitely many distinct causes might be impacting a target state. So he actually has um, a nice visualization and I have his book right here, but I just wanna show this visualization. Um, If you can see that, right? The one on, I think it's the left, Uh, The one on the left is the kind of regress style, right? That's an infinite regress, causal regress. But the other one also involves infinitely many causes impacting some target state. Both of these, according to Proust, and yeah, both of these are violations of causal finitism. So causal finitism is best understood as the thesis that nothing can have infinitely many causes, really, um, whether directly or indirectly. Mm
0: -hmm. So thinking about causal finitism, thinking like... If you think of like causations, like a chain of dominoes, like one causes the other, one causes the no- another. The causal finitist is going to say like that t- chain of dominoes can't be infinite. There's going to be like a first domino. Whereas someone who would deny causal finitism would say like, hey, at least conceptually, it's possible that like that chain of dominoes could be infinite in the past.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, they might even also say like you could have infinite concurrent causal like infinitely many things concurrently operating at the same time to produce something, you know, like infinitely Mm -hmm. many dominoes, let's say they get smaller and smaller and smaller, infinitely many of them knock into one domino. Right. So that would be infinitely many things causing one target state. That's also a violation of causal finitism.
0: Okay. Right on. Well, getting into your paper, Joe, you talk about a couple principles to get this thing started. So you talk about like, what
1: is the step principle? Yeah. So just um, a lay of the land for the audience. What I do is I first articulate some principles, just like, metaphysical principles that um, I guess someone might find really plausible um, just on the face of it. So I articulate these principles and then I go on to evaluate certain paradoxes in light of those principles. And I basically say, in light of those principles, we can derive various contradictions from certain paradoxes. Uh, and so, given that we derived a contradiction, we must have gone wrong somewhere, right? There must have been some sort of false assumption that allowed us to get to the contradiction, right? And then I basically investigate later on in my article, well, what's the culprit? Right? What's the false assumption? And I, I later, I basically give a kind of inference to the best explanation that the culprit is probably um, uh, infinite causal regresses. Um, so basically, the denial of causal finitism. So that's the lay of the land. So firstly, yeah, like you said, I go into these different principles. Um, And we're gonna use these principles as we talk about paradoxes later on. So these are important for the audience, these principles. Um, Mm -hmm. The first one, like you asked, was the step principle. And I wanna be very precise here, so I will read it as I said in the article. So the step principle, or SP, is a conditional. So it says, if A, then B, basically, like if such and such, then such and such. So here's the principle. If one, each of the steps in two processes Result in identical states of the processes' respective systems. Two, the cardinalities of the steps in the two processes are the same. And three, the processes' respective systems are explanatorily closed. Then the states of the two systems are identical at the end of the two processes. Okay, let me step back. I'm gonna reiterate that firstly. And then secondly, we're just gonna basically, you know, spell it out. What is the saying? So the step principle is saying, if these three conditions hold, then such and such follows. So the three conditions are one, each of the steps in two processes result in identical states of the processes respective systems. That's the first condition. The second condition is that the cardinalities of the steps in the two processes are the same. So that's the number of steps involved. Let's say 10 or 20 or infinitely many. They're the exact same for both processes. And the third condition is that the processes' respective systems are explanatorily closed. And I'll explain what that is later. Then it follows that the states of the two systems are identical at the end of the two processes. So what is an explanatorily closed system? Well, it's basically... A system where, um, so well, a system is like a bounded area of sorts, right? So I, I, it's kind of like a conceptually primitive thing. So like this room, here would be like a system or um, an urn, like what an urn contains. We could treat that as a system or, you know, things like that. So an explanatorily closed system is a system which has no causal or explanatory factors outside of the system, influencing the state or condition of that system.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so basically, explanatorily closed systems are ones where the end state of the system after a given period of time depends only on the various actions and operations within that system itself and within the various processes and happenings and phenomena within that system, right? Because it's, it's explanatorily closed. There's nothing outside of it that's influencing it. So its end state is purely a function of what happens within, within it, basically, um, over time. So um, let, let's, let's get an example on the table to try to understand SP. So basically, suppose we have two people, Smith and Jones, okay, Uh, and they're going to begin a process. So, which is just I take a process to be like a series of steps. You know, like a process could be brushing your teeth. You know, like first you do this motion, then you get the back molars, and then the back molars, and then you know, etc. So that's like a process. It's a series of steps. So they're doing these um, Smith and Jones. They're they're undergoing these these processes, and they're doing it stepwise, and they're traveling this process is one of traveling from las vegas to new york okay now they each follow a different procedure in their processes again it's a step-by-step process so here is how uh, jones does it so jones firstly drives from vegas to dallas secondly he flies from dallas to albany new york and then thirdly he drives from albany to new york okay so that's jones that's what he does those are his steps in his process What about Smith? Well, here's Smith's process. Smith firstly flies from Vegas to Dallas. The second step in Smith's process is to drive from Dallas to Albany, New York. And then the third step in the process is to fly from Albany, New York to New York City. So notice that like the different procedures implemented for each step in these processes aren't the same, right? (laughs) Uh, Jones drove from Vegas to Dallas whereas Smith flew from Vegas to Dallas. But nevertheless, the end state of each step is identical, right? In the first step, they both end up in Dallas, right? In the second step, they both end up in Albany. And in the third step, they both end up in New York City. And so while they go undergo different procedures for the various steps, like they get to the end state of the individual steps, nevertheless, they still get to the same end state. And what I wanna say is that given that they perform the same number of steps and given that each step that they perform ends in the exact same end state, right? Mm-hmm. It's going to follow that they can't diverge in the end state of their overall process, right? And that seems really intuitive. Yeah, they both end up in New York, right? That, that seems obvious, right? Precisely because each step along the way is such that they, there was no difference between where they ended up, right? Their states were basically identical. They were in the same location. So there's just no way that they could diverge. There's no way that they could somehow end up at a different location at the end. And so that's basically the idea behind SP. It's like, if you have two processes and they have the same number of steps and the end state of each of those individual steps is the exact same for both of the processes, then the end state of the processes as a whole is gonna be different, right? Mm -hmm. How else could you get a different end state, right? If the process is just a function of what goes on, if the end state of the process is just a function of what goes on within the system, right? Because it's an explanatorily closed system, And if you have the exact same number of steps between the two processes, and moreover, the steps end in the exact same end state for each individual step along the way, it just seems so clear that they're going to end in the, like the whole process is going to be ending. They're both, both the processes are going to end in the exact same end state, basically. So yeah, that's, that's the basic idea behind it. And, um, yeah. Mm. Do you have a good way of
0: like thinking about how like to summarize this principle, Joe, to kind of explain to people that are like, maybe have never heard this before?
1: Yeah, so basically, um, if we have two people, well, I don't know if I want to use people, but just a summary is if you have two different processes, two different undertakings, each of which is a kind of step-by-step process, Mm -hmm. and if they're the same number of steps, and if the steps end in the exact same state of the system in each case, then at the very end of the entire processes, the system is going to look identical. That's the basic idea. Okay, yeah, I think there's something intuitive to that it's like looking at it from afar. Um, you see like
0: two lines pointing to the same spot, um, just spitballing here, and it's like, well, if those lines are
1: pointing to the same spot, then they're similar lines, I guess you could say. I'm trying to think exactly Yeah. Or I out. mean if you could almost take it individually, like incrementally, like if each point on the line is such that it's at the exact same coordinate, right? So each mm-hmm. point along the way is at the exact same coordinate. That's like the end state of it. Um, and so it's this—it's identical. The state of the system is identical for each of the respective lines. Uh, if each point along the way is the exact same, well, then it's going to be the same at the end, right? You're going to have the same mm-hmm. end point to the process. Um, so yeah, we're thinking of a line segment, let's say. So yeah, that's that's um, that's the basic idea.
0: Okay, that's great. So then what's the ineffective principle, Joe?
1: Yeah, so this is the, this is the, another principle. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, so the ineffective principle or IP is basically saying that adding any number of interactions with a system doesn't affect the state or condition of the system if none of the aforementioned interactions changes the state or condition of the system. I mean, that just sounds so obvious when I say it. Like, <laughs> let, me, let me say this again, like, listen, adding any number of interactions with a system does not affect the state or condition of the system if none of the aforementioned interactions changes the state of the system. That Mm -hmm. seems so obvious. I mean, come on, like you're literally, like if you're adding some sort of interaction with a system and let's say it causes it to go from like a, but back to, it it goes from a to B, but back to a, right? So like, if I do that little interaction, it goes from a to B back to a, well then no matter how many times I do that, right it doesn't matter the system is going to end up still in that a right because each time i did those interactions it didn't alter the state of the system it went at the beginning of my interaction at a but my interaction remember didn't affect the the state or condition of the system it went right back to a so um yeah it's going to still be an a at the end of doing that interaction and it doesn't matter how many number of interactions you do you could do three of those right a to b to a a to b to a a to b to a it's still going to end in a you could do infinitely many and it's still going to end in a basically
0: Okay, that's great. So then the last principle we're going to talk about, Joe, is like what is the removal and effectiveness principle?
1: Yeah, the removal and effectiveness principle says, so um, sorry for the audience, this is, this is going to be the most grueling part of the video, but uh, <laughs> if you can get through this, we're getting to the fun paradoxes later on. Um, so the removal and effectiveness principle, or RIP, R-I-P, uh, says that were any number of interactions with a system prefer, ugh, let me start over. It says that were any number of interactions with a system, performed before some time t none of which changed the system's state to be performed well then the state of the system at t in the resulting world would be identical to the state of the system at t in the actual world. Okay, let me restate that. Were any number of interactions with a system performed before some time t none of which changed the system's state to be removed, so if we are removing any number of these interactions with the system none of which changed the system's state it doesn't matter how many we're removing, the, the resulting world where after we did the removal, the state of the system at T is gonna be the exact same as in the actual world. So um, again, we have these various interactions with which aren't changing the state of the system. So return to the case where I went, you go from point A to point B back to point A. So basically, um, if we removed some of those interactions, right? maybe one of them going from A to B to A, well then, the resulting state is gonna be, if if we remove that and we go to a world in which that's removed, the resulting state is gonna be the exact same as it is in the actual world because that little interaction that I performed, remember, it didn't change the state of the system. It went from taking it originally from A, then back then to B, then back to A. And it didn't change the state of the system. So if you're removing it, then it's also that's, not also, that's not gonna change the state of the system. So, you know, because it started in A and if you performed it and went back to A, so if you had never performed that, right, it would have still stayed in A. <laughs> That's basically the idea. And remember, this is an explanatorily closed system. So nothing outside the system is gonna cause it to go from A to B or anything else like that. So, um, and it doesn't matter how many number of these you perform, like if, if you did four of these A to B to As, like so A to B to A, A to B to A, A to B to A, etc. it doesn't matter how many of those you remove. If you remove four, five, infinitely many, it's still gonna be the exact same as it was in the actual world that when we didn't do such removals. So, <laughs> again, these are tricky and it's hard to explain and it's quite technical in the paper, but um, I hope that, I hope that helps.
0: Um, I'm curious then, Joe, so we have these three principles that we talked about, the step principle, the ineffective principle, and the removal and effectiveness principle. Um, For someone wondering, like, what was the point of the last 15 minutes? Why are we going through these principles? What impact is this going to have as we look at the rest of this video and we dive into these paradoxes?
1: Yeah. So basically I use these principles in developing these sorts of new paradoxes they're i guess new variants of old paradoxes and i bring in these principles and say you can get contradictions from these old paradoxes if you bring in these really plausible principles i mean again because they're so complicated you might not see how plausible they are but if you like if you go through my article and you you see their formulations and my explications of my my explanations um at least the people that i've talked to have found them really plausible so so i mean i find them plausible Mm -hmm. as well um just on the face of it at least uh so yeah we have these plausible principles and if you combine them with these paradoxes and you get contradictions well that means we must have gone wrong somewhere Uh, there must have been some sort of falsity right because we got a contradiction from a set of assumptions so at least one of those assumptions must be false now i argue again that the all these principles are really plausible so we shouldn't throw out those so what should we throw out well uh and i later on i go through the different potential culprits um of what's engendering the paradox and i say that each of these paradoxes involve infinite causal chains and um and that's, that's arguably the best culprit. That's basically the idea of the article. So um, do you want me to get into the the Littlewood-Ross paradox now? Yeah, let's do it. Sounds great. Okay, so this uh, this is the first paradox in my article. And I don't think we're going to go through absolutely every single one of them, but I'll just give you the, the basics for the Littlewood-Ross and then the Thompson's Lamb. Mm-hmm. So um, the Littlewood-Ross paradox... Um, How should I explain? Okay, so let's just imagine we have an infinitely large urn. Okay, so an urn is basically like a big container for those of you who don't know. Um, uh, It's a giant urn, it's infinitely large, in fact. And imagine that it has infinitely many numbered balls. No, imagine that we have infinitely many numbered balls, right? So they're like little Mm -hmm. ping pong balls, basically, imagine. And you can have like number one, number two, number three, different balls. They're each labeled with a unique natural number on them. So the urn is originally empty, okay? Uh, Secondly, the urn and the balls persist in existence unless something comes along to positively destroy them. And so these are just stipulations that I'm making for my my little paradox. The urn and the balls persist in existence unless something comes along to positively destroy them. There are no destructive factors operative on them um, at or before noon. So we're considering sometime noon. And um, moreover, nothing affects the urn at noon, right? No action is like inputting balls at noon, removing balls at noon, and so on. And then... um, Fourthly, the content of the urn, that is like the number of balls that it contains, the labels on the balls and so on, it, that persists as it is, unless it's positively changed by some action um, that I'm gonna specify in the process. Uh, and then finally, the only manipulations that are gonna alter the state of this urn are manipulations of the balls that I'm gonna be specifying in a certain process. And this process is gonna be a step-by-step process. This is where the step principle is gonna be pretty big. Okay, mm-hmm. so we've got this big urn, We've got all the balls, right? Infinitely many balls, we've got an infinitely big urn, and we got all these stipulations just about the logistics of the scenario. And now I'm gonna give you two different processes, two different processes that are gonna be performed on the balls in the urn. So the first process we can call process one. So basically what you're doing with process one is you're putting in balls numbered. Okay, how should I do this? Cause I get mathematical in the in the article. <laughs> Um, I guess what I could say is that um, you're putting in balls one through 10 at the first step of this first process. And then the second step of this process, you put 11 through 20. The third step, you're putting in 21 through 30. The fourth step, you're putting in 31 through 40 and so on ad infinitum, right? So we're basically doing what philosophers call a super task. Um, So we can perform the first step at, let's say, 1130. We can perform the next step at 1145, the next step at 1152, 30 seconds, and so on, you know, getting closer and closer and closer to noon, right? Mm -hmm. So we are performing infinitely many of these steps before noon. And remember, this is the first process, process one. What we're doing is the first step we're putting in, we're just putting in balls, balls one to 10. That's the first step. The second step in this process. Palls eleven to twenty, and so on, item for item. That's the first process. Now let's consider the second process. Oh wait, um, is, does the, does my first one involve um, removing numbers? <laughs> Sorry, I'm just trying to remember. Let me yeah. pick it up. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. So I forgot a crucial a crucial element in this first one. What you want to do? is remove ball number one in the first procedure. So, the fir- sorry, the first step. So the first step, you put all the 10 balls in, one through 10, and then you remove ball number one, okay? That's what you do for the first step. And then the second step, you put in balls 11 through 20 and you remove ball number two. And then the third step, you put in 21 through 30 and you remove ball number three, right? And so on ad infinitum, right? So that is what you're doing at each step in this process. So again, you're putting in these these balls one through 10, these 10 balls, and then you're taking out number one at the first step and then the second step, and you do this stepwise infinitely many times before noon. Okay, that's process one. Now for process two. So for process two, you put in balls. So it's the same timing, right? So you perform the same number of steps. This is an explanatorily closed system. It's the same urn. It's the same balls, everything, the same stipulations. But your process is different. Your process instead, the steps are, here's what you're doing in the first step. You're mm-hmm. putting in balls one through nine. And then you write on the ball number one, you write a zero next to it to make it 10. So effectively, what you did is you put in balls one through nine, and then you changed ball one to ball 10. Okay. So now at the end of the first step, you have balls two through 10 in there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And if you notice something, right, that's the same as in the first process, right? Remember, in the first process, you put in balls one through 10 and you just took out one. So what you're left with is two through nine, or sorry, two through 10. In this second process, right, the first step is you're putting in balls one through nine and then you write a zero at the, at the the to the right of the one to make it such that you have balls two through 10. It's the same end state. So that's the first step in the second process. The second step in the second process is, put uh, balls 11 through 19, and then take ball number two and write a zero next to it. That makes it number 20. So now you have balls, uh, what is it, um, three through 20 in there, which is the same as you had in, in the first process, if you think about it. And so basically you repeat this. You, you repeat this. You, take, you put in basically the um, 11 through 19, and then you write a zero on the two. That's the second step. The third step is you put in balls... Um, 21 through 29, and then you take the three and you write a little zero next to it to make that ball 30, and so on, ad infinitum. Mm. And so let's think about this, right? Think about what is gonna be the end state of that first process. Well, you're going to have no balls left in the urn at the end of that first process. Why is that? Well, because on each step, you took out the ball with the natural number of that step, right? So on the first step, you took out the ball number one and you never put it back in. In the second step, you took out ball number two and you never put it back in. In the third step, you took out ball number three and you never put it back in <laughs> and so on, an infinite item. So there, there cannot be any balls left in the urn at the end of this process, right? Mm-hmm. Um, think about it. If there were a ball left in the urn at the end of this process, what would its number be? Could it be like 4,000? No, because on the 4,000 step, You took it out, you took out that ball and you never put it back in, right? Mm -hmm. So um, there there can't be any balls left um, in in the urn at the end of this this first process, process one. But now think about process two. Process two does not end, process two at the end of the process at noon, right? So we're comparing the states of the systems at noon. At the end of that second process, it's full of infinite, the urn is full of infinitely many balls, right? You never removed, any balls whatsoever in this process, right? Remember, you just added in one through nine, and then you just wrote a little zero on the one to make it a 10. So you literally just added in nine balls. And you did that every single step. You just added nine balls, then you added nine balls, and then you added nine balls, and you added nine balls. To be sure, you like wrote some numbers on them, but you never took anything out, right? Mm -hmm. So at the end of this process, you're going to have infinitely many balls. You're going to have nine in the first step, nine in the second step, nine, 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 all that um, for infinitely many steps. You have infinitely many balls in the urn after the second process. But just think about this, right? Like, at the end of each step in this process, the state of the urns were identical. They were identical. At the end of the first step, the state of the urns, it was balls two through two through 10, right? Because in the first step, remember, you put in one through 10 and you took out one. And then the second step, you put in one through nine. And you wrote a little zero on the one to make it a 10. So you have two through 10. In the next one, right? You have, uh, what is it? Two through 20. Or maybe was it three through 20 or whatever? Yeah, you have three through 20 in the second step for both of them. In the third step, you have four through 30 and so on, right? You have the exact same balls in the content, in in the urn after each step of both of these processes. And yet somehow at the end of the processes, you get radically divergent results, right? In one of them, it's a full urn, and in the other, it's an empty urn. That, I mean, if if (laughs) if you think about this carefully, that's a violation of SP, remember? SP said, if you have two different processes in a system and each of the individual steps in the processes has an end state, which is identical, and there's the same number of steps in these, uh, in these processes. And if it's an explanatorily closed system, which I stipulated, it follows that the end state of the process as a whole has to be the same. But we just concluded that the end state of the process as a whole is not the same. So we have a violation of sp on our hands. That's the paradoxical nature of this. The paradoxical nature of this is that sp seems really intuitively plausible. And yet <laughs> you get a violation of it if you do this infinite causally connected process. So um, that's the basic idea. Do you want to talk about Thompson's Lamp or do you want to talk about some of your paradoxes you know, that you developed um, that kind of like build upon these ideas? So for purposes of space, I think people, if they're interested in Thompson's Lamp, and that's where the toggle principle and, and the ineffectiveness principle and those sorts of things come in, and the, the RIP, the removal ineffectiveness principle, those come in with um, Thompson's Lamp. So um, we, 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 for purposes of space, I'm kind of with you. We don't need to get into those. If people are interested, they can check the article. Um, I Mm -hmm. developed some new paradoxes concerning Thompson's Lamp. Um, I guess I'll just basically run, like I'll just say what Thompson's Lamp is so we don't leave the audience hanging. Um, Thompson's Lamp, you basically have, uh, you're asking what is the state of the lamp at noon? And then before that, before noon, there are infinitely many togglings of the switch. So you turn the switch on and then it goes off and then it goes on and then it goes off and you do this faster and faster and faster, right? So at 1130, it's on at 1145, you toggle it off at eleven fifty-two thirty, you toggle it back on and so on ad infinitum up and up and up until noon. And you then ask like, well, is it on or is it off? Is the lamp on or off at noon? Right. Um, it can't be on since any time you turn it on, you subsequently turn it off. Right. Um, but it also can't be off since every time you turned it off, you, almost immediately turn it back on. So um, yeah, uh, actually, strictly speaking, you, you can't get a contradiction out of this, this uh, setup that I just gave. Um, you have to add, as I point out in the article, um, you have to add certain principles like the uh, removal and effectiveness principle and so on. Um, so yeah, anyway, that's the basic idea behind Thompson's lamp. It's a little bit paradox. And it's another paradox involving infinity and so on. But yeah, now let's get on to these like different variants that I developed. So this is where a lot of the, um, the novelty comes in, in my article. So Thompson's lamp, that's not mine, right? That's from Thompson. And then the Littlewood Ross paradox that comes from mathematicians like Littlewood and Ross, right? Uh, So those paradoxes aren't mine. I mean, applying, applying these various principles to these paradoxes, that is new, but also I develop new variants of the paradoxes. So what's the purpose of these variants? Well, the variants basically alter minor details within the scenario, which show that the paradox, the contradiction isn't due to certain, you know, specific features of a given particular specification of a particular scenario. So in one of them, so in in, in my paradox that I specified, right, it was a super task, if you remember, right, you performed infinitely many tasks in a finite period of time. What that means is that you're performing tasks faster and faster and faster. Of course, a human couldn't do this, but you might be able to imagine like, some sort of angel or god that was able to do this or some sort of a machine that was able to do this at superhuman speeds and so on but um so someone might try to resist the paradoxes and say like oh well we don't have to we don't have to say that there can't be infinite causal chains to debar these paradoxes to rule these out maybe time just can't be structured like that right maybe time just can't be broken up into these smaller and smaller units ad infinitum or maybe there can't be anything that is able to perform a process that fast right Mm -hmm. maybe maybe that can kill the paradox and so you don't need to go to causal finitism right because each of these involves some sort of infinite causal chain the state of the system at the end of the at the end of the process is dependent on infinitely many causal steps beforehand so um it's basically ways to resist causal finitism i'm like well actually you can develop paradoxes that don't involve the super task, uh, or that don't involve a machine that has to go faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. Right. Um, and so I basically just give a bunch of different variations. And so I guess I'll just, I'll go through one here just for purposes of space. Otherwise we're going to be here all day. (laughs) Um, so, uh, I think I want to try the one where it's, uh, an infinite past. So let me, let me open this up in my, um, if you have any comments while I'm bringing this up, um, I'll turn it over to you while I, while I try to find it.
0: Well, putting the pressure on me. Um, I mean, I think that at this point, I think we're at a good spot and I'm just kind of putting filler in words. I don't know exactly what to say (laughs) because I'm so flustered. So I'm just going to keep talking about random stuff until I get thoughts about like the weather's pretty nice here in Virginia right now. Um, But I guess thinking about this, I, I think it's really cool how you're voting on these paradoxes, Joe, because you're trying to, um, it's just really cool what you're doing. And I think that when you think about these things, um, you're a great example to look to and how you're really, even though you don't have your mindset on causal finitism, and we're gonna get into that in a minute, um, you're really doing the best to try to find the truth here and give people tools that they can explore on their own. So, All right, awesome. Well, up now?
1: Yeah, yeah, I pulled it up now. So thank you. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. So this one, you don't have to have, um, you don't have to have like, causal transmissions getting faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. And, faster. and you mm-hmm. also don't have to have time getting infinitely, infinitely smaller and smaller and smaller because you know, that is controversial. And there are some philosophers who take a view of time called discrete view of time where um, time has smallest units that you can't further decompose. Yeah. Um, so here's one version that, that doesn't require that. So basically we have the two processes but they're performed throughout um, an infinite past essentially um this one oh no this one is actually uh, the um this one involves okay yeah so no 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 this one does have the faster and faster time um i'm gonna see if i oh Bruce was the one who gave the one where it has infinite time and infinite afterlife so that that one's a little bit extravagant okay set aside the th- <laughs> set aside what i was saying about getting faster and faster and faster um uh, with respect to time um Because you can actually get, like, mathematically coherent, describable, mathematically coherent situations wherein um, you have an endless afterlife. But then after that, you have another endless afterlife. So it's super interesting. But that actually allows you to get um, these sorts of paradoxes that don't require smaller and smaller time and faster and faster units. The one that I'm about to share with you is one where you don't have to have causal transmissions getting faster and faster and faster. So you don't have that, like... Um, you don't have someone having to perform a task like super duper quickly or any machine having to do that super duper quickly. I mean, after all, plausibly, um, I mean, some philosophers argue that causal transmissions in the actual world can't go faster than the speed of light. And uh, if that's the case, well, then at least in the actual world, you wouldn't be able to have these paradoxes. And maybe there's some like absolute um, maximum for how fast causal transmissions can go, right? So that would be able to kill the paradox as well. So in order to rule that out, in order to rule out these sorts of things, I developed the following situ- situation. So this does involve space. This does involve time getting smaller and smaller, but causal transmission can have, it could be at the speed of light, let's say. And you don't have to have any mechanism that's like doing things faster and faster and faster. So, um, okay, so can, consider a scenario wherein we have uh, some, sort of, some sort of mechanism that can uh, shoot a laser beam that can go and then cause one of the, the steps to be performed or something like that, okay? So that's that's the mechanism. I and mean, it's like shooting some laser beam or something. <laughs> it is so hard to explain because, you know, it's like <laughs> mathematical and everything, but. Yeah. Yeah, so, so it shoots a la- laser beam and that travels at the speed of light. And then that basically just um, affects this infinitely large urn to perform the, the, first ta- the first step of one of the processes at, let's say, 1130. So it's the same timing as in the original paradox, but you don't have faster and faster causal transmission. So then what you have, you have an infinite past, and then um, the, the first laser shooter or whatever sends its laser at, like, um, one light year, like, however long it takes for it to be one light year away in the past or whatever. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Let me just read it. Um, so basically, each mechanism is shooting out its laser and... It is n light years away from the position in the urn where it's going to, you know, cause the balls to go into. Mm -hmm. And then at different points in the past, right, because if if each of them is a certain amount of light years away and they get farther and farther, right, that's going to take longer and longer for the light to reach it. Right. So each of them is shooting their lasers at different points along the infinite path. And so basically what you're able to do is that you can get all the lasers arriving at the same times as in the original paradox. And so causing the various manipulations and so on, but you don't have faster than light, um, causal transmission or something along those lines. So it's, it's quite complicated. And I advise people to check out <laughs> the paper. Um, this one is hard to talk about verbally just because there's so much math involved. Um, like, uh, if people look at the paper, I mean, you know, I'm going like two to the power of one minus N and two to the power of negative one N two. And I'm getting into these like, anyway, <laughs> so that, that's, that's one different like variation on the paradox that, that avoids certain ways that people might, um, push back against these, these paradoxes as used in favor of causal finitism. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I want to say is that you can get rid of a lot of these auxiliary assumptions, like time can't be infinitely divisible, uh, or that time can be infinitely divisible rather. And that, um, causal transmission can go arbitrarily fast and that um, you can have an infinite amount of matter, right? That's another assumption. And I show that you don't actually need that assumption, right? Remember, the urn was infinitely large. Some people might say you can't just, you just can't have infinitely, you can have infinite amounts of mass, right? That's another way that you could kill it. But what I show is that, no, I mean, you can get rid of all these auxiliaries and you're still left with a paradox, essentially. And so what that tells us is, well, plausibly, well, none of those particular things are responsible for the paradox. Rather, as I argue, Plausibly, it's due to there being these infinite causal chains, right? It's precisely because you have an infinite causal chain that's able to lead up to this target state that you can have this step-by-step process leading to these different violations of SP. Um, And just, you know, worrying about the structure of space and the structure of time and so on and the the structure of causal relations, what I point out is that you could just get rid of those. Um, You could get rid of those assumptions and develop different versions of the paradox that get rid of those assumptions, but that nevertheless still have the contradiction. So what seems to be preserved in each of these cases is infinite causal chains, and so that seems to be the culprit. Okay, Mm. now I think that was a lot clearer.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I think that was clear, and yeah, I think that's good. Joe, do you have any way of like explaining this? Like, I'm always thinking about ways to try to like keep things simple. Like, if you had a really simple like um, elevator pitch, like 30 seconds, um, way of summarizing like what the issue is going to be here with this this paradox that you're bringing up here, how would you kind of summarize that?
1: Yeah. So basically, what we have is we have an infinite causal process for being performed either in an arbitrarily short period of time or maybe infinitely long. And we have two respective processes going on. And despite the fact that they have absolutely identical end states for each of the individual steps along the way, and despite the fact that they have the exact same number of steps, and despite the fact that nothing outside the system influences the state of the system, Nevertheless, you get divergent results at the end of the two processes. And that just seems crazy. And that seems crazy because we have this step principle or SP, which seems intuitively plausible. And given that, we can say that we have a violation of SP on our hands, but SP is true. So we get a contradiction. SP is false and true. So where did we go wrong? We went wrong somewhere. One of our assumptions must have been false because we derive a contradiction. And what I argue is that the most likely culprit, For the false assumption is that there can be infinite causal chains right there can be an infinite causal process wherein you have these step by step by step -step things that can that can occur so that's the basic the basic thrust right on so i'm curious then joe let's talk about this why do you think
0: um at least in the paper why would you argue that causal finitism is the best solution to all these paradoxes that we're bringing forward
1: here yeah so a little bit was um precisely because what we were just talking about for the um like the different variations right i gave a lot of different variations in the article that show like appealing to um, discrete views of time or discrete views of space, like that's not going to be able to kill it because I can get paradoxes like these same sorts of paradoxes without the assumption of infinitely divisible space or infinitely divisible time or um, arbitrarily fast causal relations or infinitely an infinite amount of mass. None of those are essential to the paradox. I may have you know specified the paradox originally that way, but my point is that you can discharge those assumptions and you can get basically the exact same paradox without using those sorts of assumptions. And so what that tells us is that none of those ways that a lot of contemporary philosophers use to get around the infinity, par- infinity paradoxes, none of those are going to work in this case. And I argue that um, the only plausible culprit remaining is, is causal finitism. So that's basically the idea. And I also appeal to something called Patrick principles. Uh, and I basically just follow Rob Coons in that regard. Um, I basically just say like, hey, A Patrick principle is a modal epistemological tool. It gives us reasons to think that certain things are possible. possible. And it's basically like if if we have actual things that are individually possible and you can just rearrange them in certain ways, well, then the rearrangements are going to be possible, right? So I have all these, I have a bunch of stacks of books right next to me. Um, And if I, you know, because they're individually possible plausibly I can like rearrange them and shuffle them around and even like duplicate them. You know, some of them, there being more matter, I can duplicate them and rearrange them. And then that rearrangement, I have good reason to think that that's possible. That's what the uh, the Patrick principle says. It's like if you have rearrangements of things that are known to be individually possible, then you have, you have good reason to think that that rearrangement in which you cut and paste things and duplicate things and rearrange things, you have good reason to think that that's possible. And basically what I say is that if there could be infinite causal chains, right? So if there could be like infinitely many things, which are arranged in a causal chain way that, You know, stretch back infinitely into an infinite regress, um, whether within a finite period of time or an infinite period of time, you're going to be able to rearrange like actually existent mechanisms so as to be able to engender these sorts of paradoxes, so as to be able to construct by rearrangement um, these sorts of paradoxical scenarios. Um, Because I mean, we know that urns are possible. We know that little balls are possible. We know that numbering balls is possible. We know that there are mechanisms that can move balls and things like that. And so if there really could be infinite causal chains, well then I can basically rearrange actually existent things into that structure, that infinite causal structure, so that they instantiate this this paradox, this Mm -hmm. Littlewood Ross paradox. So those are two sorts of reasons that I go through in the article. And uh, of course, I mean, I have some reservations for these. so, I mean, I have various reservations for Patrick principles and I have, um, it's not clear to me ultimately that causal finitism is the best solution. I mean, you might be able to give a kind of unsatisfiable triplet or quadruplet um, specification, like just because some infinities, some infinite causal chains are impossible because they have contradictions. It doesn't mean that all of them are impossible, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, um, but I know we're going to talk more about causal finitism later, so. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's great, Joe. So I'd be curious then, all of you might be listening to this and wondering, like, dang, Joe, this is pretty good. Like, why don't you just, like, be a full-on causal finitist, bro? Get on the train. Let's go. Um, so what holds you back, Joe, then, from being, like, a full-on causal finitist?
1: Yeah, so um, one reason is just because a lot of the extant arguments for it I don't find, um, like, super convincing. So for mine, you know, I have some reservations, you know, um, just because some infinite causal chains are impossible. So this is even granting some of those principles. Um, I mean, I myself... I don't know if I should accept all of these principles. I mean, yeah, some of them are, do seem kind of intuitive, don't they? Um, I mean, at least by my lights, they, they seem pretty intuitive, but should we expect our intuitions uh, to be, you know, our intuitions were cultivated and shaped by interaction with finite things around us. Should we expect our intuitions about infinity to be reliable? It's not at all clear. Uh, mm-hmm. So like that, that's that's one problem with appealing to like these kinds of intuitions that I do in this, in this article. Um, and also, you know, like, again, debarring, even if we grant some of these uh, principles, like just because some infinite causal chains are impossible, that doesn't license you in inferring that all of them are impossible. Now, you might try to justify that by appeal to Patrick principles, but I have various reservations for Patrick principles and so on. I think they have lots of counterexamples and um, and we're applying them in domains very, very far removed from our ordinary experience, right? So um, we, we never in our ordinary experience are we using the Patrick principles to patch together infinitely large worlds with infinite causal chains in them. No, the Patrick principle that we use in everyday, um, in everyday modal reasoning is like, I've got a book here and it could be over there. (laughs) Like those sorts Mm -hmm. of like um, very humdrum, ordinary, very um, everyday grounded modal inferences. And those might be justified, even though the very far removed from our ordinary experience, modal um, recombinations maybe we don't have good reason to think that those are possible precisely because they're so far removed from our ordinary experience. We just don't know what would be possible in such cases. So like mm-hmm. I have reservations for each of the extant sort of arguments that people offer for causal finitism, including my own. Um, and so, yeah, uh, for a lot of the paradoxes that are cited, for instance, in um, Proust and Coons and, and so on, I think that there are other simpler, potentially more powerful solutions um, or ways to kill the relevant paradoxes. So um, on my channel, I go through the unsatisfiable pair diagnosis, um, which in my view, quite powerfully shows that um, a lot of these paradoxes, not the ones that I developed, but a lot of the Bernadetti paradoxes like Grim Reapers and so on, um, what's responsible for those paradoxes doesn't have anything to do with causation. Rather, it has to do with an abstract structure that they instantiate. And the abstract structure is basically, ultimately, like just saying P and not P. It's just harder to see. Um, but that abstract structure shows you that like, you can even generate non-causal versions of these paradoxes. Like you can, And I go through this on my channel in my Kalam playlist. Um, but like, I think that tells us that it's not infinite causal chains that's doing the work. That that's the culprit here. It's this abstract structure um so like that's for sort of certain benedetti paradoxes and i advise people to see my column playlist for more on that and i've got stuff under review so that's one reason right that's one reason why i'm not a causal finitist just because i have reservations for lots of the extant arguments for causal finitism including my own so that's one mm-hmm. reason a second reason um is that a, lots of these arguments for causal finitism so not only like reservations but also like big problems for these arguments uh, is that a lot of them seem to entail that the future cannot be endless. Um, but it seems to me that it's really plausible that the future could be endless. And for instance, Christianity entails that it is endless uh, and as, as does like Islam and so on. So um, like in Benedetti paradoxes, you could just imagine. So instead of each Reaper doing something if and only if no earlier Reaper does something with infinitely many earlier Reapers, you can have each Reaper doing something if and only if no future Reaper does something. And if you have infinitely many of those Reapers, each of which is instantiating that rule, well, then you get the exact same contradiction. You could just derive it so I can get out the little uh, paper and pen and show you how you get the same contradiction from that. And then, of course, you might say, oh, well, how are these how are these Reapers sensitive to what what's happening in the future? Right. In the past, you can kind of see. Right in a mechanism Mm -hmm. as to how that could happen, right? Because it's in the past, right? Usually our dispositions are past sensitive. Like I see something that happened in the past and I can act on that. How can you act on and know things that happen in the future? Well, that's where you bring in God, right? Defenders of these Benedictic paradoxes are almost universally theists, or at least traditionally. (laughs) Uh, they're, They're traditionally theists. And so they think God exists and knows the future. And so God can reveal to individual reapers whether or not some reaper in its future swings at scythe let's say so there Mm -hmm. are and so if this could show that there can't be infinite causal chains past oriented wise or if there can't be infinite pasts, because if you could then you'd be able to have this sort of paradox well then it would also show that you can't have infinite futures which would entail that christianity is false which would um and it's also just really implausible right the future could be endless that just seems really plausible um so that's another one of my reservations for a lot of these arguments um and i've also got some stuff under review on that so So yeah, the first main reason is reservations for the arguments. The second main reason is just like not merely reservations and like unclarities and so on, but like big problems that I think I see with the arguments. The third one is just that um, causal finitism is, shall we say, very metaphysically profligate. Uh, What that means is that it's, uh, it's really unsimple. It's a wide sweeping unsimple thesis about the structure of reality. It's saying there cannot be infinite causal chains of any form whatsoever. And that rules out lots of ways that we might otherwise think that reality could be. I and mean, it rules out, arguably, it rules out infinite past. it rules out, um, I mean, it would arguably show that time is necessarily discrete rather than being able to be infinitely divided, right? Because suppose that time did have these kinds of infinite divisions already in it. Suppose that time weren't discrete, suppose that there weren't smallest units of time. Well, then, let me just drop this right now. I'm just gonna drop a pen if you could see this. Okay, I just dropped a pen. Now it's end state there is causally dependent on its various states throughout that process of me dropping it right um part of the reason part of the explanation the causal explanation for why the pen ended where it did at the very end is because let's say halfway through it had such and such velocity such and such laws of nature were operative its state was such and such um it had such and such momentum and so on so like its state at each of these instants throughout the way is causally relevant to its state at the very end they cause it at least indirectly and so what that means is that in any ordinary causal process, you have an infinite causal chain in violation of causal finitism, if time is not discrete, plausibly. And what that tells us is that, I mean, causal finitism is going to have to entail that time is discrete. It's like, whoa, that's a major, that's a major implication. Like, lots of philosophers think that time not only, uh, you know, time could be continuous, right? I mean, because causal finitism says that these causal chains are impossible, it would show that time is necessarily discrete so like a lot of philosophers think like not only is continuous space or this infinitely divisible space not only is that actually true um but i mean it's at least possible right (laughs) you might think that um but like and, and some of our best scientific theories treat space or treat time as if it's continuous treat time as if it's infinitely divisible and so like i don't know man it just has Causal finitism has so many of these sweeping implications for the structure of reality. Um, and arguably you're going to be able to, ch- for precisely the same reasoning, you're going to have to show that space is necessarily discrete. So like there, there is a smallest unit of space um, for the same sorts of reasons, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like you start to realize all these massive implications of causal finitism about just the structure of reality. And not only that, the necessary structure of reality. And you start to be like, Whoa, I did not sign up for that when I was just looking at these paradoxes. Like, mm-hmm. um, and I mean, a lot of like, you know, there are lots of philosophers who think that time is not discrete and that space is not discrete. Um, and still more philosophers who think that at least it could fail to be discrete, where it could, uh, et etc. But if causal fairness is true, then it couldn't fail to be discrete. It's necessarily discrete, et cetera. So it's like, and there are more of these implications. I'm just going through a few. So it's like, it's such an unsimple hypothesis. It's like, you think you're signing up to this innocuous claim, um, but like it has these wide reaching implications that are potentially even in conflict with like empirical science. I mean, like again, some of our scientific theories that are exceptionally well-confirmed treat time as if it's continuous, as if it's infinitely divisible and so on. So it's it's just, you need to be hesitant if you're trying to adopt causal finitism just because of how unsimple it is. Um, all else being equal, we would prefer much simpler solutions to these various paradoxes if we can. Um, so that's the third broad reason. I'd say the fourth broad reason is that, um, I don't know, like a lot of these arguments just rely on applying either intuitions or applying modal principles well far removed from our ordinary experience. Um, like, I don't know, our intuitions are cultivated by, our, again, like our, our interactions with the finite world. And yet lots of these paradoxes of infinity and so on are trying to apply principles that we find intuitively obvious or if I'm intuitively plausible to these, you know, these far reaching infinite domains that are so far removed from ordinary experience. And it's like, it's difficult to see how you could be justified in doing that. Similarly, with lots of other um, principles, like Koons uses an infinite, infinitary Patrick principle. And, you know, when Koons is introducing his argument, he's saying, oh, yeah, well, we use Patrick principles in everyday, in everyday reasoning, you know, we use um, Patrick principles to be able to tell if I'm able to take this route, if it's blocked or so on. It's like, okay, even if that's true, that I mean, you can doubt that. I mean, but okay, set that aside. Even if that's true, we use a kind of humdrum everyday Patrick principle. We most certainly do not use an infinitary Patrick principle where you can mm-hmm. recombine infinitely many things in these infinitely many ways. You know, It's like, I don't use that in my everyday reasoning and I don't think anyone else does. So, um, and it's like, why should I think that that principle, why should I afford any confidence in the deliverances of that at principle if it's so far removed from our ordinary experience and it's concerning like these far out metaphysical possibilities? I mean, even the nature of metaphysical modality is steeped in unclarity and so on so it's like i don't know it's like i i'm i'm really hesitant with respect to these modal facts in domains that are super far removed from our ordinary humdrum experience and i'm hesitant to apply principles that seem plausible um especially in finite cases uh applying them to infinite cases so that's maybe a a fourth reason is just um oh and then i guess if you if you want to say okay joe like if you if you can get around those worries and you can say, well, no, we actually can apply these sorts of principles to domains removed far from ordinary experience. We can apply um, intuitions beyond them. Um, so, so it's basically a dilemma. If we can't apply these principles and in, in intuitions, or at least we're arguably unjustified in doing so, then a lot of these arguments for causal finitism fail. But if we mm-hmm. can, if we can apply them, this side of the dilemma, Well then actually bunches of these modal epistemological tools actually count against causal finitism, right? I can conceive, you know, conceivability. I can conceive of infinite causal chains. I can conceive of perfectly benign ones. Um, like, that, like me just dropping this thing. I can conceive of space, time being um, continuous with being infinitely divisible, and you know, I can just drop this. I mean, that's perfectly well conceivable. And so an infinite causal chain is perfectly conceivable. Um, and if conceivability gives us defeasible evidence for possibility, then I have some weight of a reason to think that infinite causal chains are possible. Contra-causal finitism, same with imaginability, right? I can imagine these sorts of things and that's a modal epistemological tool and I'm applying it in domains far removed from our ordinary experience, but, but still. Um, Uh, again, we're on that horn of the dilemma where we're justified in doing that. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, modal uniformity or continuity. Some of your philosophers might, some of your philosophers, some of your listeners might be um, familiar with Josh Rasmussen and some of his work. But Josh Rasmussen basically has a principle of modal uniformity or continuity. And it basically says that if Y is possible, and if Y differs merely in quantity from X, then we have defeasible reason to think that X is also possible. To me, that seems prima facie plausible, right? We shouldn't posit violations in otherwise uniform quantitative classes, uh, unless we have positive reasons for thinking otherwise. Um, and you know, if we apply this to infinite causal chains, well, I mean, hey, we have really good reason to think that any finitely long causal chain is possible. And given that infinitely long causal chains differs from such finite chains merely quantitatively, and given that the latter are uniformly possible, per Josh's own principle, we have defeasible reason to think that infinite causal chains are likewise possible. Uh, similarly with modal recombination, right? Remember, I, I appeal to an, like a, a recombination principle in arguing for causal finitism, and some other authors do as well, but actually boatloads of recombination principles deliver the possibility of an infinite past and infinite causal chains. So David Lewis's principle allows this, Daniel Nolan's Daniel Nolan's uh, Patrick principle allows this, but basically you can just patch together space-time regions themselves, right? So we know that space-time regions are individually possible. Let's say a space-time region... Um, containing this desk and uh, this hour, right, that we've been here. Well, if I can duplicate space-time regions and duplicate the contents of space-time regions and rearrange them in various ways, well, then I should be able to take this one that I know is actually possible because it's actual, and I should be able to duplicate it infinitely often. And and what that shows is that you could have an infinite past because you can just duplicate this space-time region infinitely often into an infinite past. Um, We know that it's actual, and we know that we can do these duplications and, and recombinations and so on. And I just don't see any relevant difference between... Um, patching together space-time regions themselves uh, from, let's say, patching together contents of space-time regions, or, um, yeah, but anyway. So, like, a lot of these modal principles count against causal finitism, the ones that are, the very ones that are used in these sorts of arguments for causal finitism. Um, And then here's a fifth reason. I think I have six reasons in here. Yes, okay, so here's my fifth reason why I am not a causal finitist, uh, and at least why I'm agnostic. Um, and it's basically a new companions and guilt argument against causal finitism. Mm-hmm. So I actually sent this argument to Proust. Um, and he said that it's quote, a pretty powerful argument. So I, I posted on social media and I also posted on my, my YouTube channel that, um, Proust said this. And he also said some kind things about my work more generally, which I was very, very grateful for. Um, but people were asking like, Joe, what was the argument? What was the argument? Um, and before I get to the argument, uh, for the, uh, to to, um, to uh, tease the audience, my battery is at 4% right now. So I'm going to go up. I'm going to be back in two seconds. If you could um plug your channel or plug my channel or something while, for like 30 seconds <laughs> while I go grab it, that would be appreciated. I'll- yeah, right on, man.
0: So I will um, plug channels, and thank you, Joe, for telling me something to do here because I don't think like was put on the spot. Um, but, yeah, Joe's channel is at The Majesty of Reason. So if you're watching this on YouTube, you can literally just click it right there, add it, boom, done, following Joe. And if you are listening to a podcast, it should be added as well. And, yeah, and obviously this channel is a team of projects. If you're new here, always encourage you to subscribe, with a like, and all that fun stuff. So, yeah, I encourage people to check out both their channels. Joe channel does a lot of, like, philosophy, looking at things like classical theism and other models of God, and looks at, like, especially, like, Thomistic arguments and things like that. My channel just explores a bunch of different things in Christian, like, philosophy, theology, apologetics, stuff like that. And, yeah, if those things interest interesting, encourage you to subscribe to both our channels. Um, and, yeah, there's, there's a lot of great content on both channels, and I think Joe is back, or not. Okay.
1: Oh, okay, maybe. I am back. Um <laughs> Let's see. Start the camera up. Whoops. I click stop game. There we go. go. Okay. I saved it just in time. Sorry. I was a little (laughs) bit worried. Um, That's been on my mind for the past, like, five minutes or so or, like, ten minutes. It's been slowly going down from, like, 6% to 5% (laughs) to 4%. (laughs) I I was like, I'm sorry. I need to stop this. I've been a little bit distracted. But, okay. Back to the (laughs) Proust argument, right? So, I sent this argument to Proust. And so it's basically a companions and guilt argument against causal finitism. I don't know whether or not it ultimately succeeds. I just find it, you know, somewhat plausible. Um, And again, Proust said it was, quote, a pretty powerful argument. So that's kind of cool. But um, so this doesn't, of course, mean that Proust ultimately agrees with it. Right. But it does mean it means something. OK. So, again, recall that causal finitism is the thesis that necessarily nothing causally depends on infinitely many things. We can also articulate a closely related thesis called dependence finitism. Now, according to dependence finitism, nothing depends on infinitely many things. Notice the close similarity between those two, right? Causal finitism is that necessarily nothing causally depends on infinitely many things, whereas dependence finitism is that necessarily nothing depends on infinitely many things, right? So there's literally one word, Difference between these theses. Uh, one of them just adds in causal to the dependence, right? It's nothing causally depends on infinitely many things, whereas the other one says nothing depends on infinitely many things. Okay, so here's the argument, and then I'm gonna just gonna go through the plausibility of some of the premises. Um, so this is a companions and guilt argument against causal finitism. Premise one if causal finitism is true, then dependence finitism is true. Premise two, but dependence finitism is false. Conclusion, it follows that causal finitism is false. That doesn't mean that there are infinite causal chains, by the way. It just means that there could be. Okay, remember causal finitism is a a thesis about necessity, right? It's necessarily, nothing can causally depend on infinitely many things. Okay, so premise two, why should we think that? Well, remember premise two, it says that dependence finitism is false. Well, um, again, I'm just gonna kind of do a strict technical sense of ad hominem argument here ad hominem usually in in like the sort of colloquial contexts we think of an ad hominem as like you suck therefore your argument fails or like you suck therefore you're wrong or you know something (laughs) like that um but as there's a technical notion of ad hominem that philosophers use and the technical notion is that um like you're showing that someone else's views have an internal problem with them so like for theists, you might say, like, okay, I'm not, you know, someone might say, I'm not a theist, so this isn't, like, a problem for me, but it's, it's an ad hominem in the sense that this is a problem for those who hold to theism, you know? So that's sort of what I'm doing. I'm doing a kind of ad hominem procedure for theist proponents of causal finitism, right? So people like Bruce and Coons and so on. Okay, so I think that such theist proponents should think that premise two is true. That is, they should think that dependence finitism is false, because that's what uh, pre- premise two says. Okay, why? Well, here are some reasons. First, there are infinitely many truths, right? Uh, One plus one equals two, one plus two equals three, one plus three equals four, and so on. Those are all true. Um, I'm distinct from the number one, I'm distinct from the number two, I'm distinct from the number three, and so on. Mm -hmm. We could be here all day. Um, So there are infinitely many truths, but knowledge that P depends on it's being the case that P, right? You can't know something unless it's actually true, unless it's actually the case, right? So knowledge in some sense depends on the fact. Now, this is widely held in um, epistemology and it's, yeah, it's widely, very widely held. Um, Knowledge that P depends on P's being true. In fact, I I don't know anyone in epistemology who denies this. Um, Okay, so knowledge that P depends on P. And so what that means is that because there are infinitely many truths and God knows all the truths since he's omniscient, right? And knowledge that P depends on P, we've got God's omniscience depending on infinitely many truths. And that's in violation of dependence finitism. Right. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So um, similarly, if the future is endless, right, God's knowledge of what happens on each day of the endless future depends on what happens on each day of the endless future. Right. Um, Like God knows that this will happen tomorrow, that such and such will happen the next day, that such and such will happen the next day and so on ad infinitum into an endless future. And so God's knowledge, again, is going to be depending on infinitely many facts here. The fact about what happens tomorrow, the fact about what happens after the day tomorrow, the fact that what happens after that day and so on ad infinitum. So, again, we've got God's current knowledge, depending on infinitely many facts about what's going to happen in the future. Um, Furthermore, right, God has infinitely many ideas, right? He's got ideas about numbers, ideas about abstracta, ideas about possibilities that he could have created and so on. So God's knowledge of his own ideas, right? God obviously knows his own ideas. What are you gonna say, God's ignorant of his own ideas? That's ludicrous. Um, So God knows his own ideas and there are infinitely many such ideas. So God's knowledge of his ideas depends on infinitely many ideas. And again, that's in violation of causal finitism. You have God's knowledge or God, let's say state of awareness, that's dependent on infinitely many different things, namely his ideas. So again, if you're a theist, I think you should really accept premise too. Dependence finitism is false. Proust uh, also gives arguments in his 2018 book based on reasons. Uh, so plausibly, since God is omnirational, he's perfectly rational and um, etc. Because he's omnirational, he acts on the basis of any and all reasons that there are. Okay. Mm-hmm. But there are infinitely many reasons favoring the actualization of our world, right? I mean, take any particular good that occurs. The fact that that good occurs is some reason to create our world, to actualize our world, because it's a good thing, right? Good things give God a reason to actualize our world. But, you know, if the future is endless, there are going to be infinitely many good things that obtain in the course of the history, the history as in the whole timeline of our world. And so God has infinitely many reasons to create our world, right? Because each of those individual goods, and there are infinitely many of them, is itself a reason to create our world. And so God's choice to actualize this world depends on um, his taking infinitely many of these things as reasons. So we've infinitely many reasons supporting or undergirding um, a single choice of God's, right? So we have one thing, God's choice, depending on infinitely many things, the, the different reasons that there are. Now, what Proust says in his book, is he just says, yeah, like that, that's true, but this is not causal dependence. So he says, okay, that's fine, right? It's, it's, it's not a violation of causal finitism. So Proust agrees, it seems with me that dependence finitism is false. And uh, I think you should too, (laughs) you as in the audience. Mm
0: -hmm. So
1: um, if you're a theist, and then finally, a final reason to think that dependence finitism is false, uh, is that, um, well, you know, plausibly, a lot of philosophers think that mathematics, mathematical realism is true so that there are numbers, let's say, and also set theoretic realism is true. Like there are sets, right? Um, it, it's, uh, it's difficult to go without sets in your ontology. Um, but uh, if there are sets and if there are numbers, well then plausibly there's a set containing the natural numbers, um, but sets depend on their elements, right? Uh, it's not as though I depend on the set containing me, right? This abstract object, which is the set containing me. No, that set exists Precisely because I exist, right? It, sets are dependent on their members. It, members are more fundamental than the sets uh, that they are members of. And what that means is that if we have a set of the natural numbers as per mathematical and set-theoretic realism, well, then we have one thing, that set, depending on infinitely many things, right? The different numbers, and there are infinitely many such numbers. So um, again, there's really good reason to think that uh, mathematical realism is true, that set-theoretic realism is true, and so on. And these entail a violation of... of a. Uh, Dependence finitism, okay. So, premise two seems plausible. It seems plausible that dependence finitism is false. Mm -hmm. Especially if it's cast in these kind of ad hominem terms for like, hey, you theists should think that this premise is false. Um, Mm -hmm. But what then about premise one? If causal finitism is true, then dependence finitism is also true. Um, Well, the idea is that intuitively, there is no relevant difference between causal finitism and dependence finitism that could account for why one But not the other is true, right? Um alternatively, if causal finitism is true, it's plausibly true in virtue of, let's say, the nature of the causal relation, right? For example, it might be that infinite causal dependence is a kind of vicious dependence. But plausibly, dependence more generally shares these objectionable features in, in infinite cases, right? If causal dependence is vicious, well then plausibly just explanatory dependence, more generally, where one thing is depending on infinitely many things, that's likewise vicious. There just doesn't seem to be any relevant difference between the two. It would seem arbitrary to say that one of these is perfectly possible while the other one isn't, despite the fact that they're so similar to one another. Again, causal dependence is just a kind of dependence. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what's what's what undergirds this premise even further is that, um, I mean, causation and dependence more generally, plausibly have the same formal properties or the same formal features so they're both asymmetric right so if a causes b then it's not the case that b causes a and similarly if a depends on b it's not the case that b depends on a they're also irreflexive right it's not the case that a causes a right nothing can cause itself and similarly it's not the case that a is explanatorily dependent on a right a can't be grounded in itself or like somehow dependent on itself it'd be pulling itself up by its own bootstraps it's for the same reasons that um same for the same reasons that people say you can't have self-causation you also can't have self-dependence self-causation something would need to exist in some sense explanatorily prior to itself in order to even bring itself about in the first place so it would be both prior and posterior to itself and but the same thing is true of this explanatory dependence Uh, and moreover they're both transitive right if a causes b and b causes c then a causes c so like if i cause this water bottle to knock over and that water bottle's knocking over causes water to spill on the floor well then I still caused the water on the floor. You can blame me for that, right? I was causally responsible for that. Maybe indirectly, but I'm still a causal, I'm still causally responsible for it. Similarly, dependence is transitive. So if the structure of the water molecules um, depends on certain chemical facts uh, about sharing of electrons, and those chemical facts depend on more fundamental physical facts, um, let's say like a poly exclusion principle or something, well then the, the the water molecule facts depend on those physical facts, right? So transitivity applies in both cases. So it's like they have the same formal features, and in that case, it seems exceedingly difficult to draw a wedge between causal finitism and dependence finitism, such that only one of them could be false while the other one is true. Um, or alternatively, it's very difficult, it seems, to draw a wedge between infinite causal dependence chains and infinite dependence chains, which such which is such that it could justify you in saying that one of them is possible while the other one is just somehow impossible. So again, like these, none of these like strictly entail like you know, you'd be irrational if you don't accept premise one. I'm not saying that, right? <laughs> so mm-hmm. none of them strictly until that, but I don't know. They seem pretty plausible. And uh, Proust also thinks that they, they, they seem pretty powerful. So um, it's a companions and guilt style argument against causal finitism. I might try to write it up uh, into a paper. Um, maybe. Um, I've just got so much on my plate. So anyway, mm-hmm. I think that's a fifth reason. And then um, a, a sixth reason, which I'll be very short here, because I know we're coming to the end of our time. Um The sixth problem is that, uh, well, hey, I mean, we might think, like, listen, a lot of people say an infinite past is really counterintuitive. Like, it's just weird. a finite past is so weird as well. I mean, I don't know. (laughs) Think about it. Like, it's so weird. Like, if the past is finite, I mean, arguably, right, if the past is finite, well, then, you know, something plausibly brought the past into existence, plausibly. Um, But that thing could not itself be in the past. It could not itself be in time because it's supposed to be what's responsible for time, right? So you'd have to have some sort of, Timeless to temporal causation, something like timelessly causing something. It's like, how do you get a temporal effect from a timeless cause? I mean, that's not really an argument, but it is an intuition. I mean, a lot of people do share this intuition that, like, how could you have timeless to temporal causation, like something timeless, somehow bringing about a temporal effect? A lot of people think that that's just extremely counterintuitive, but it's also inductively implausible, right? I mean, inductively speaking, uh, All the causes in our experience are (laughs) temporal-to-temporal causes, and that gives us some weight of a reason to think that uh, all causes are temporal-to-temporal causes. Um, Just as the fact that we see in our experience that every beginning has a cause gives us some weight of a reason to think that every beginning whatsoever has a cause. Um, So, yeah, I mean, and there are more problems that you could point out for a finite past. It's just people ignore the counterintuitive nature of a finite past by focusing on the counterintuitive nature of an infant past by their lights. Uh, but, like, <laughs> you turn the tables, and it's still like you get lots of implausibilities. It's like, man, there's like a timeless cause of this. And it's like, did that timeless thing somehow become temporal? How is that not like a change? And if it was a change, how is it not the case that it used to exist in timelessly? But that doesn't make any sense, right? You can't used to exist timelessly, because that's like saying that the timeless thing stands in temporal relation to other things. And the timeless thing would be in the past. So then does it like always exist timelessly? But then that seems really weird, then you'd have like a timeless God or somehow some other timeless object, which is continually sustaining a changing creation. Um, If presentism is true, that gets you into a lot of big trouble. So like, yeah, a finite path is mm-hmm. difficult, man. It, it's very difficult. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, so is an infinite path, but both of them are difficult. I mean, we're at the edge of uh, human thought. Something weird is happening. But if someone wants to rely on intuition to rule out infinite paths, well, then arguably they, they should rely on intuition in this case as well. And if there are these intuitive problems for a finite past, that might justify us in thinking that, hey, the, the past couldn't be finite. And if the past couldn't be finite, then plausibly it's infinite. If the past is infinite, well, then arguably you get a denial of causal finitism from that um, because the past is infinite. If you think that causation provides time with its... Um, directionality and unity such that what you unify something into one timeline is a kind of continuous flow of causation and continuous causal links uh, what that means is that you would have an infinite causal chain in, in an infinite past so if you think that there are problems for a finite past and that uh, if you think that there are such problems that can motivate you in thinking that the past is infinite uh, or at the very least that it could be infinite <laughs> and mm-hmm. if it could be infinite then it could be the case plausibly Uh, that there can be infinite causal chains, which is a violation of causal finitism.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. So again, none of these, again, I'm not giving anything that's like strictly entailing causal causal finitism's falsehood or um, these other sorts of things. I guess my point is just like, you know, there are some reasons that people can have that aren't implausible to think that causal finitism might not be true. Um, and yeah, and like, I mean, like I said, I'm agnostic on these sorts of things because I do think that there's an interesting case to be made from causal finitism. It does have explanatory power in killing a number of different paradoxes in disparate domains. So that that is something going for it, right? Um, there are other ways to kill lots of these paradoxes, but I mean, causal finitism does give you a unified solution to them and that's that's desirable, right? You want a unifying solution that um, can unify these disparate hosts of domains and so on. And it seems to be explanatorily powerful as well. So. <laughs> As you can see, uh, I'm agnostic on the matter. And um, I think a lot of people in these sorts of domains suffer from a little bit too much confidence, either in the truth or falsity of calls of finitism. And uh, I just think there are considerations on both sides, people. And um, the lay of the land of reasons is faster than you might think.
0: Hmm. Well, I appreciate your humility on the topic, Joe. And I like how you're trying to show, like, hey, there's really good reasons to think it might be true, and there's really good reasons to think they might be false. And it's like, it's a complex issue. We're not going to like come home and Watch this hour and 15-minute video, and boom, you're done. Answer solved. The rest of your life, yeah. you're, you're done. Um, so, Joe, thank you so much for joining me. Really appreciate it. Any, like, last thoughts or things you want to say before we wrap up here? Well, thank you
1: for having me on. I wanted to say that. Um, I, I guess uh, – <laughs> I'm sorry we've gotten to – like, I don't know. It was so difficult to explain some of these concepts. Like, mm-hmm. um, this has probably been one of the most challenging interviews that I've had just because it's – I don't know. It's really difficult to explain what's going on in my paper there just because – there's a lot of math going on. There's a lot yeah. of exponents like and different processes, different terms like systems, processes, steps, a bunch of different principles at play. Uh, a lot, a lot of different concepts involved, like underdetermination and uh, causal, causation, time, the structure of time, the topology of time. Like, it's very difficult. So this, I, I mean, this is one of the most difficult. This is one of the reasons why I've shied away from talking about this article on my channel and so on, just because I found it, I found it very difficult <laughs> to talk about it um, in a way that, yeah. uh, in a way that you don't need to like have a lot of philosophy training to understand so i tried for the audience i tried Mm -hmm. um so but i'm sorry if at times it was difficult to understand but anyway i hope it served all of y'all
0: yeah i mean i think a good analogy for this is like i just hope we can find something out of this like i've been reading um martin luther's um bondage of the the man or free will or something, something like that it's like just basically like free will sucks guys come on get out of here and for me there's a lot of points where i'm like what is he talking about but every once in a while, like, I get a little nugget. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. And okay, that makes sense. So even if it, like for you, if you like listen to this and you're like confused, um, hopefully you found a little bit of nuggets here and there that can help you make sense of your journey. And yeah, Joe, I think you did a great job. And obviously, it's a super technical paper. So I think you crushed it. So thank you so much. And I already did all the nice talking of saying, go follow Joe into the when you were charging your computer. So well, thank yeah, you. that's it, guys. Um, thank you, Joe, so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Have a good one. And God bless. We'll see you next time.